I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as US news channels roll into a third day of election coverage, which broadcasters have won the hearts and minds of our panellists? As the sun sets on Johnny Depp's defamation case, what does News Group's victory mean for tabloid journalism? Plus, the legacy of legendary print journalist Robert Fisk. And is there pride or confusion at the BBC's new social media guidelines? And in the quiz, Christmas has come early. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me on today's show, firstly, we warmly welcome back the Professor Emeritus of Journalism at City University, Liz Howell. Hi, Liz. Hi. Uh, you are a former director of news for ITV. So I have to ask, were you loyal to the brand on Tuesday night or did you get your US election coverage from someplace else? I was also managing editor of Sky News as well. So I had two loyalties. Um, I was uh, Ahead of news. Yeah, but did you watch the BBC anyway? (laughs) I did. No, I did a bit of BBC, but I did get fed up with everybody thinking the BBC is the only game in town. So I watched quite a lot of Sky News, quite a lot of um, ITV. And I thought, I mean, actually, it's quite funny in a way, isn't it? You can't imagine anything worse than the producer saying to you, hmm, Phil, for 24 hours. I mean, the way they just had to keep talking was amazing. And there were some some great acts. I mean, I thought Chris Mason on the BBC was great, just as we were going up to the election on the uh, 3rd. And then I really enjoyed... um, Cordelia Lynch on Sky News. I think she's very good. So, of course, they're both former students of mine. Mm. Are they? <laughs> yeah, so it's good to Sky see Sky News them. has also seemingly sort of flown out all of their anchors to Washington, which seemed initially like a weird thing to do because you'd think that you'd have a result a bit quicker than we have, but actually has turned out to be rather wise. Yes, it's been very sensible because there's so much goss that they can get and insider information and so on. And I, I think they've been really good. And I think Dermot Murnahan has been great as well. So I've, I've really enjoyed it, actually, but I've got a bit fed up now at the same thing appearing on the sort of new screen all the time. I don't know where we are at this very moment, but it's it's... Well, of course, at, at this very moment, hopefully we have a winner. Uh, <laughs> but at the time of recording, not. Uh, also joining us today, no stranger to the Gogglebox himself, it is the entertainment director of Heat magazine and host of the pilot TV podcast, Boyd Hilton. Hello, Boyd. Hello, Ollie. Did you have a flick around as well, the rival news networks this week? Did I flick around? Um, uh, <laughs> no, not really. I watched CNN. I've been watching CNN pretty much solidly for the last 48 is it 48 hours? When we, oh, yeah, we're, we're recording today, yeah, uh, on, on oh, Thursday. Oh, you haven't slept, have you? <laughs> I didn't sleep much. I, did, I slept for literally a couple of hours on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. I took the day off on Wednesday deliberately, in a way in advance, knowing that I was going to stay up all night. But my question about TV coverage is, if you've got access to CNN, or indeed, I mean, any US 
network, apart from Fox, obviously. Although Fox apparently was scrupulously fair on the night. But if you've got access to CNN, why the hell would you watch British coverage? It's, it's completely like, you know, I mean, you've got actual, as it happens, votes being tallied in front of your eyes solidly on CNN. And you've got about half an hour later, you know, with all due respect to the British coverage, them just about catching up and trying to interpret what it all means for us. But I was like, I'm just watching CNN. I did flick occasionally to, I'm sorry to say BBC, not sorry, just, you know, in terms of the obvious choice to see if Andrew Neil was getting angry about anything, you know, which he was at various points. But generally, um, I had to watch it on CNN, yeah. I think the answer to the question, surely, Liz, is uh, because we're not all massive political geeks and it's quite hard to understand the American electoral process, whereas CNN is catering for viewers who are really in the thick. Yeah, CNN particularly. I think that's exactly the point. I mean, I did a thing with students four years ago and we did a, an all-night coverage of the, of the election then. And even then, with a lot of American students and with having done the prep, I found it very hard to understand. And I actually thought that some of the coverage, the UK coverage, coverage was really helpful in explaining what was going on and I, I enjoyed that and thought it was really good. I mean I can see Boyd's point of view if you're deeply into it of course the US is the only place to be and CNN is the US here really and that's a great feeling but I do think that our own channels gave it a context and an explanation which I found useful. I'll tell you another thing that's really weird about CNN Boyd I tried watching CNN yeah it's every eight minutes there's a commercial on there that appears to be aimed solely at a businessman in a hotel room in Abu Dhabi it's like next time you're choosing a fossil fuels company remember (laughs) it's like what is this that is the nightmare are they targeting Boyd yeah they're targeting (laughs) me yeah that is the nightmare of CNN you're right those ads and there's only because there's only there are literally I think probably somewhere between five and ten of these ads yeah. and they, so you do see and, the same and none ones. of them customer facing brands so they're completely impenetrable it is bizarre I, and those were the moments obviously when I did switch over and check so I probably checked um, BBC and ITV and Sky a bit more often than I'm, I'm admitting but those are when I did um, have a look at the other channels indeed and those ads so, are so come on yeah. just admit Boyd you did have the comfort blanket of having the BBC going I did, I did. <laughs> and I would say actually um, Catty Kay on BBC with Andrew Neil is phenomenal I, I think it's it's uh, we don't get to see her very often though. but she was brilliant she was absolutely brilliant now, I thought the two of them together were great of, of, from what I saw and you mentioned Fox News which was obviously pulled off uh, from Sky about three years ago when uh, they were trying to uh, well, let's not revisit that whole thing. No. Yeah, it was just pulled off. Sky. They, it was pulled off. Were, yes. Yeah. But I'm sure it was coincidental that they were trying to look like a legitimate news organisation at the same time. But when that happened, um, it did deny us the opportunity on these kind of nights to actually see what Trump's supporters would be watching. And in such a polarised election, I did actually feel the loss of Fox News. I'd have liked to have seen what Fox News was saying. Oh, I did have Fox News, of course, on an iPad because their stream was available. Um, legitimately to watch internationally. And um, they, of course, um, called Arizona for Biden very yeah. early. And, um, uh, and they were the first to do they so, were. and quite controversially. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and Trump was furious about the whole thing. That is a huge, a fascinating story in itself. And in fact, their, their anchors, I mean, they did keep going to their opinion people every now and then, from what I saw, those complete, you know, unbelievably right-wing um, um, people who make Fox what it is, effectively. But the actual coverage itself, with the anchors there was was fair, it was pretty fair and decent. And and the fact that they did call Arizona so early before anyone else is testament to that fact because it, you know, absolutely ruined the whole narrative for Donald Trump. Well, one of the things that I, I was very pleased with with ITV, I think they were one of the first to um, explain the, the Latino situation in Florida, which I, I couldn't quite understand why Florida was going the way it was going and the demographics there. And they had a, a I don't usually like box 
pops, but they had a very good sort of chat with a, a, a young Latino bloke who explained why he voted for Trump and because he just had this absolute terror of Biden and socialism, which seems ridiculous to us, but putting it in context, I, I thought that was very good. Often when they just interview random people, you think, oh, why are they doing this? This is horrible. But that was good. And something that's changed since the last US election is that all the rival news platforms, which may originally be tied to newspaper brands or radio brands, really are effectively TV channels now too, aren't they? So you had the New York Times doing a four-hour live edition of The Daily, which is a podcast, but if it's live, as far as I'm concerned, that's radio. LBC video streaming, it's radio coverage. Uh, The Washington Post doing a live stream on Twitter, which looked like TV coverage. But it only had 10,000 viewers. I mean, is it worth it, Liz? Yeah, probably. I mean, it depends how you're looking at it. I mean, it was on this very podcast a while ago that I said I didn't think that Times Radio was going to be successful. And I've changed my view on that because the actual costs of, of radio are quite small and the results can be extremely effective. Well, you've got a problem with radio coverage of something like in the election is that we desperately need the graphics. We desperately need to be able to see things. And interestingly, on the uh, Prime Minister's COVID press conference at the weekend, that the scandal about the fact that you couldn't see the graphics properly, it really did irritate people. And I think that when you've got good graphics, it really, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words in that sense. And that's where radio can't quite make it. But radio generally, it's a relatively inexpensive option. Does act as a barker for your main product, and so the answer is really why not? It can work. Boy, do you think they can compete with telly? I mean, it seems to me with these big events, people still want to crowd around the TV. Yeah, of course they do. But on the other hand, they might be driving. I mean, I remember listening to uh, Trump's inauguration speech when I was driving to South Wales in a horrible wet night. And it was fascinating listening. And, you know, there are people who, for various reasons, cannot watch television and the radio's there for them. I think also uh, there's an expectation in there that that those outlets are going to cover it one way or another. So if you're a fan, you know, if you're a listener to LBC, for example, um, it would be almost weird, wouldn't it, if they kind of thought, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna not cover this live because CNN and BBC's doing it. So once you establish yourself as a twenty a rolling news service of any kind, I think you have to cover it. I think the papers example, that your your example of the Washington Post and all that, I do think that's a bit weird because you know radio. I think radio coverage is great, particularly if it's going through the middle of the night. You know, if it's four a.m., it's easier, isn't it, to listen in bed effectively than to watch the whole thing set up in your chair on on TV. So that makes sense. But it is. I, I think the newspaper coverage, I think, is a bit weird, and and I think I think it's almost like those outlets now, like the New York Times, feels like it's a it's a, such a general media outlet providing video, audio, podcasts live coverage of this kind of thing and inserting itself almost as part of the story because they had tickers for three particular um, swing states and I noticed that on the American TV coverage they kept referring to the New York Times tickers as if, you know, that was because of course the New York Times national ticker four years ago was a complete and utter disaster which predicted that um, that uh, the Democrats would win by about 95%. And then by the end of the evening, it was 95% the other way around. So all of these things are, kind of are, part of the, are part of the story. And I think it's probably just about makes sense for them to take part in it. But I think for me, the hero of the whole thing was John King on CNN. I just wanted to quickly say, he was the guy, John King at his wall, at his fact wall, who seemed to have memorized the population and political voting of all 3,000, whatever it is, counties in the United States of America and could refer to them willy-nilly um, every single moment of the day and had his, and could flip them onto his video wall and explain what the hell was going on live before your eyes. And CNN pretty much stuck to him and Wolf Blitzer 
talking us through the live voting for about four or five hours. They didn't even go to their own interview people and they didn't even barely even had any interviews at all in, in, in that core period. It was quite incredible. Can I just put in a word for Ed Conway, who I thought was absolutely brilliant on, on Sky, doing exactly the same thing, seem, seeming to be in total control of all the information coming in and showing you the options. And that really was like a light bulb moment for me watching him. And it was a fantastic use of graphics and, and just very good communication. So I thought that was excellent. Is he one of your ex-students too? Sadly. Not. <laughs> <laughs> I get quite cross when they're not. <laughs> um, let's talk about how it looks on social media as well, because most of us were second screening who are watching, and Liz Twitter has been censoring some of the current president's most recent tweets. So not just marking them up as unreliable anymore, not just flagging them and saying, look, there's another side to this, but actually actively preventing Twitter users from seeing what the current president of the United States has to say. I know, it's, what do you make it, of that? it's absolutely astonishing. They were a bit slow, I think, at first, but then they did catch up with it. But um, some of the things that he said have been really quite um, bizarrely inaccurate, like saying uh, we, we mustn't look at any votes cast after 4am. And he obviously meant votes counted after 4am. And there were those sort But they're not of, bizarrely inaccurate for him. It's the kind of thing he does. So were Twitter right to stop people looking at it? I find that a very difficult one. I really do. I mean, probably yes, because there's a very, it, it's inaccurate. And perhaps he himself is saying things which afterwards he thinks, well, that wasn't quite right. I don't know. But if, if it's absolutely, if it's inaccurate and then yes, it, Twitter are right to do it. And perhaps they should have been a bit faster off the mark. But the whole false news thing and who's saying what on Twitter, it, it has to be, there has to be an element of free for all. That's the whole point of Twitter. And so if they if they edit everything and, and sort everything out, they're taking on a completely different role for themselves. That They're becoming publishers in a way that that's not their business plan. So it's very complicated. What, what this is really about is the bizarreness of having a president who does it. That's what it's, it's not about Twitter. It's about this particular character. But that is the situation we're in. And Boyd, you know, if, if the president says something that is fathomably untrue, then the whole point of Twitter should be that underneath it, people can pile in and say, no, that's a load of bollocks. And then you can actually get a little blue tick by the verified journalists who are saying, and this is why it's bollocks. So is it their role to take it away? Um... Well, I wonder if they can do what they like because it is it is a private, you know, it's not, I, I think, I always think the idea of censorship on these platforms is a bit odd because, you know, I didn't invent Twitter. We didn't invent Twitter. Some, 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 some geeks did in uh, Silicon Valley. And, you know, if they want to, if they want to ban people, they, it's perfectly, I think it's ab- ab- totally up to them. So I, they're t- t- taking that as, as a side issue almost. I think it's a bit pointless to, to, to um, censor the president or to, you know, I think, I think it's, you know, to put a note underneath saying this is palpable nonsense, don't believe a word of it, I think that's fine. And that almost annoys him more, doesn't it? So anything that annoys Trump more is fine by me. Um, but censoring it, I think, is a bit ridiculous. But having said that, I am kind of in favour. I know there's a bit of a myth about, you know, in, in, in quotes, extremist um, discourse on Twitter and that you know, when, you, when they have banned certain real extremists for being... I don't know, Holocaust deniers or, out, or obvious um, white supremacists and stuff like that. It's worked. I mean, it does taking away those voices actually from your platform does actually deny them a voice. And, I, and I'm kind of in favour of that, really. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. It's a sort of common sense approach. There, there are some things that we would agree are all are bad, you know, amoral. And that's perhaps when it's right that they, they act in that way and they, they deprive them of the oxygen 
Twitter. I suppose the theory behind this was it was whilst the votes were still being counted and the president was literally saying stop counting the votes. So they were saying our responsibility to, as an American company, protect the process of democracy is more important than our responsibility not to be a platform. If you're going to show it on TV, which of an interesting one of the networks did stop cut, cut that off, didn't they? Well, NBC or CBS or someone I think did actually cut off that that Trump speech, which is interesting to point out how outrageous it was. But CNN certainly showed it live, and then afterwards they they, they said it was outrageous. I think if you if it's if a speech like that is going to be broadcast live on TV and radio, etc., then you know why is it up to Twitter to say to to to, to not let its followers see what he's saying? You know, so yeah, I I, I think it's a bit pointless for Twitter to to make those decisions. Okay, enough U.S. election stuff. We'll be back with more media news because that's what we're here to discuss after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Media Podcast is made in partnership with Rethink Audio, a group of award-winning podcast producers. Let's have a quick turn of the dial and hear what they've been up to this week. When I eat loads of cheese, I do actually feel really anxious. <laughs> and when I like... Sam Smith talks to Fern Cotton about their new album on Happy Place. Cheese, alcohol, bread... I'm always going to have Never them. go to France, basically. Never go to France. Kids TV presenter Maddie Moat finds out what birds are saying on Sound Explorers. As ever, we have an expert on hand to help us answer the question. In fact, we're going into the field to meet them at their favourite birdwatching spot. I wonder where it's going to be. Come on, let's go. And Ian Hislop speaks to the real victim of Pizzagate on Privatised Page 94 podcast. They claim online that cheese pizza means one thing and ice cream means something else. Right. And so, of course, so it's implied that we're guilty because we're talking about cheese pizza a lot yeah. here at the pizzeria. That, that would implicate all pizza outfits in the entire United States, yes, presumably. I think so. And much, much more. Maybe they can help you make your next podcast. For more information, head to rethinkaudio.com now. Okay, welcome back to the media podcast. Liz and Boyd are still with me. Uh, let's talk about Johnny Depp and his libel battle against the Sun, which he has lost. Liz, uh, remind us 
why Johnny Depp was suing in the first place. He was suing the son for saying he was a wife beater, basically. And it was that phrase that he objected to. And it was the onus of proof was to set on him, in a sense, to say that he wasn't a wife beater. And the, the information that came in from Amber Heard in the eyes of the judge proved that uh, the son's statement was correct. It was a really, really simple case in, in that sense. And I think that... It's, it's a difficult, I mean, the son is now saying sanctimonious things about, you know, they're against domestic violence. And it, it wasn't really that. It was a celebrity story, although, of course, we were all against domestic violence. Um, I think that what's going to happen from now on is going to be really interesting to what extent that this is going to colour the way people like say, J.K. Rowling and so on behave towards death and what they're going to do. I did see, obviously, he's going to appeal and that's going to, to be interesting. It, it's hard to think how he could get anywhere with an appeal. Um, but it's a sort of classic old-fashioned story, really. Yeah, and can you explain as well why Dan Wooten, who wrote the story that triggered the lawsuit, was named on the lawsuit? Because some people listening to this will just assume, I think, that it's NGN's responsibility for publishing the column, um, not Dan Wooten's for writing it. What did you used to say to your journalism students about that, about libeling people in print? Well, you must never do it. And, you know, never assume check or be very careful. And there are all sorts of old adages like, you know, is it true? Will they sue? Can we afford it? So, you know, often in the old days, the red tops traditionally, I think, did get away with things on the grounds that people couldn't sue, they couldn't afford it. Death was a different a different category. The, the journalist himself being responsible is a difficult one because it is the publisher, that's the paper, that has actually got to pay the damages. But the fact that he did it means that he has got to take some responsibility for what he did and he has got to justify what he did. And I think that's why he himself was involved in the case. And Boyd, have you ever encountered a situation like that? I mean, I know, you, you know you're basically a critic, so I'm I'm sure it hasn't happened to you, but you've been working at Heat where people have been writing celebrity gossip. Have you ever had lawsuits come through where journalists in the office are suddenly thinking, oh God, I'm on the hook here? Very rarely, funnily enough, to be honest, because I think we're lucky, we've always been lucky at Heat that in that we really, we don't really, we're not in the business of breaking news stories like the tabloid, the papers are. So we kind of, you know, we more expand upon stories that are already out there. It's kind of what we've always done. I mean, we've I mean, we've gone into trouble a couple of times, I think, legally, but we've just generally apologised and I think it's always gone away. I don't think we've ever um, had to... I don't think we've ever faced any kind of court case in in, in this country. There are offshoots of the magazine in other countries, you know, South Africa, Australia and stuff. Um, So we've been fine. But, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating case. I think think it does make... I mean, I think it's an incredible... I mean, first of all, you know, obviously he's appealing, so, so... and, and, and various lawyers I've seen saying, you know, he stands a, quite a strong chance of, a, of appeal. I, I, I'm no expert. But I thought it was such an interesting case because you've got like a, a newspaper that's traditionally been completely, you know, sexist, racist and homophobic, kind of being on the side of uh, the woman who's being traduced in this situation as being called all kinds, effectively being called a gold digger and all kinds of other incredibly, you know, um, sexist terms. And the, the newspaper and, the, and her, Amber Heard and the son together felt like fighting this ridiculous figure of Johnny Depp, you know. Um, it, it, it was fascinating from that point of view. And to see, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I thought, it, you know, I'm just very glad that she won in a sense. You know, I know it wasn't her case, but for her to be heard 
and for her to be believed, I thought felt very important. It's interesting though, because the original article, if you read it, was attacking a woman. It was attacking J.K. Rowling, wasn't it? The original article was Dan Whitten saying, Johnny Depp's a wife beater, and here, J.K. Rowling, are five reasons why you shouldn't be employing him. Right. You virtue signaling author. That was, you're right. That's the agenda. They hate J.K. Rowling for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, for being a kind of lefty liberal, what, what, whatever, who's, who can say what she likes and criticise who she likes. So you're absolutely. So it was absolutely intriguing and quite odd case from that point of view that it felt like being Amber Heard you know versus Johnny Depp as much as it was the Sun versus Johnny Depp and with that background that you mentioned and with all the revelations that you never ever get you know in in the world of of celebrity journalism laid bare and you know from my point of view I mean as you say I'm more a critic than than I don't really but I do interview celebrities I've interviewed celebrities probably more or less every week for the last 20 years. But what you don't get is them telling you these aspects of their life that were laid bare in this case. And that's why it's interesting that that, that Johnny Depp brought, brought the case. And I mean, that, that I find quite fascinating because uh, you, there is always in the, in the celebrity world a certain degree of bizarre behaviour. That's the nature of being a celebrity and not perhaps having the same constraints as the rest of us. Had he never said anything about this, none of this would have blown up to this extent at all. I think a lot of it's to do with a sort of virtue signalling. I know we all hate that phrase, but in a way that's what Depp was trying to do. I am not one of these bad people. I'm Deep down, I'm a me too person. That the, the way things have swung in favour of, of, of women in this particular type of situation it's it's good and it's interesting and that's why he sort of had to do it I think um, because the, the sort of social mores have moved on and now to be seen as in any way a, a, a perpetrator of domestic violence is, is totally unacceptable. But as a result so much dirty laundry was aired I don't know if you've read the actual judgment by Mr Justice Nicholl but I, I mean I, I scanned it but I went through to the conclusion and on the final page the judge seemed to make a point of pasting in a text message from Johnny Depp to one of his friends, which was submitted as evidence, which is really vile. I'm not going to even repeat what he called Amber Heard in that text, but he certainly wished her harm in the message. And even just reading that, I mean, even if you take away everything else, the fact that that was submitted to court, it wasn't contested as a genuine text message, that colours your judgement of someone who stars for $100 million in Disney family films. Yeah, that's not a great thing at all, but it doesn't mean that he's a wife beater, that what he says and what he does are different, and perhaps he thought he could take the risk on that, I I don't know. What does it mean for Disney and Johnny Depp, though, Boyd? I think it's going to be very difficult, uh, because as Liz says, I don't think you can be seen now, thankfully, you know, in this day and age, as being an abuser of of women in, in if you're you know for anyone and if you're a famous person if and and that's what this judgment if he doesn't win the appeal will mean and for it puts people like you know anyone casting him in a really difficult position quite rightly um and it acquies particularly you know that he's involved with the parts of the caribbean you know um uh films which are family films it just feels unpleasant and wrong and inappropriate so you'd think you'd think it would have that effect but having said that and i'm not by no means the first person to point this out money talks and if you know the fact is he is such a superstar and has such a huge fan following you only have to look on social media and the people outside the court who were shouting abuse at amber heard and all of that these people are obsessive followers of him and he's got a massive fan base and, you know, if someone thinks he can open a film, then they'll probably cast him. And we don't know what Johnny Depp thought might happen. I mean, presumably he thought that he'd, you know, he'd win. But we, do, we can speculate that his lawyers might have said that newsgroup newspapers will settle. You know, whatever the rights and wrongs are, they'll go to a settlement because they won't want this big expensive trial. Were you surprised that they actually did take it all the way through? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I was as well. Uh, and I also think, but I do think, apart from whatever the lawyers said to him, I do think what this case has proven as well is that when you're that famous and rich and entitled and living in that level of bubble, and by the way, we met, you know, I read every single day the, the transcripts of this trial, his enablers, his staff, you know, all of the people on his payroll, all of those kind of cliches about the extent to which that level of fame puts you in an unreal world of your own making were absolutely proven by this case. And I think he just thought, I am, I, I'm going to get away with this. You know, I am, I am I'm who I am. Yeah. I am who I am. But they must have been relieved at the sun, weren't they, Liz, when the verdict came through? And they must have thought, because it was, it was on a knife edge whether they should have settled, really. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting as to why they didn't settle. And they must have been very sure of their ground. And maybe that's why Wooten came in and was so involved. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting one, but it, it's probably overall a, a, a good thing the way that it's worked out. We'll have to see what happens with the appeal, of course. Staying with the press, um, and Fleet Street has lost another legend, 30th of October, uh, the death of journalist Robert Fisk. Uh, Liz, briefly, Robert Fisk, what's his legacy? He's an amazing person. He's a great expert on the Middle East. He's written some wonderful books. Pity the Nation is one of the... the, the everybody I know thinks it's one of the best books on the Middle East, whichever side you're on. And he was a fascinating character and quite... Charismatic is the wrong word, but he was he was quite electric when you met him. And I met him, I was covering the first Gulf War and I was managing editor for Sky and was the sort of field producer. And Robert Fisk was going into the, the sort of front line and I met him there. And he's but he had got this sort of um almost overexcitable um manner, which which is not like his writing. His writing is almost elegiac on occasions, but his manner was very, very excitable. And I remember also we, I met his wife, Lara. And uh, she wanted a lift to the front line because Robert was at the front line. And uh, we gave her a lift in the back of our truck, the sky truck at the time. And it was really like being with Hemingway and Gellhorn. You know, there was something almost old fashioned about this sort of romantic partnership. Um, and they were, they were quite an, an electric pair. And he was, he was very compelling and very, very good and in the sense that he knew his stuff. But he also annoyed a lot of people. There were allegations that some of the... Um, and particularly the things he, he said about Israel were unfair and, and unfounded. And you, you, it was quite hard to unpick a lot of the stuff he did. But he was a legend. He was a, a journalism legend. Yeah, I, I just admired him incredibly. I think um, I ha have interest in, you know, Israel and Palestine and the Middle East and just watching him, listening to him, reading him. Um, he was just, a, a, I think, uncorruptible reporter on all of that stuff. And I think it's hard, you know, I think people, and fearless, you know, I think, it's the hard, one of the hardest things, isn't it, for any journalist in the world is to cover the Middle East and to cover the complexities of those countries and those wars and those conflicts. And I think he just did an exemplary job, really. He just trusted him the way, in the way that I wouldn't trust a lot of other people. Um, frankly, but he was he was very very partisan and quite blatantly partisan, and th there is a danger in that, which perhaps we'll talk about when we talk about um, impartiality in the BBC and so on. Um, but at the same time, there was a, a, this compelling excitement that he generated in, in what he did. In a strange way, that made him quite modern, though, didn't it, Liz? Uh, I mean, you know, you sort of think nowadays he probably wouldn't be writing for The Independent or certainly not in such a codependent way. They used to put him on the front page, didn't they? But he probably would be able to attract an audience on Patreon and Substack because he had a view. Yeah, absolutely. He had a view, and that gets that gets us onto other people who we're going to talk about later who who have views. But but he also was a great writer. And when you read Pity the Nation, which is um, one of the best factual books I've ever read, it's compellingly good and terribly well written. So he was he was literate in terms of literature. 
he, he was a great writer. And the journalism, I think, is a slightly different thing. And you do have to be careful as a journalist not to sort of be too obviously, in my view, associated with one particular um, view of the world if you're a, a, a UK journalist. And he wasn't frightened to be totally partisan for Palestine, really. But so that had to be watched. But when you read his stuff in the light of knowing that that's his particular thing and he's going to be partisan, it, it was fantastically interesting. I mean, it is a sign, Liz, of how the world has changed that when I read the Independence obituary for Fisk, the sidebar was a link to some advertorial. Uh, Susan Boyle is so skinny now and looks like a model we can't stop staring, brackets, photos. I mean, who is paying for that kind of journalism these days? Well, who was paying for it then as well? I mean, yes, he was he was hired originally by the Times and then again by the the Independent, and they paid. But but they had to be very careful about this sort of you know about checking what he was saying and why he was saying it. He was a difficult man to handle, and I think perhaps now he would exist in a different way. He'd be on a different platform, but he would exist. And great writing and great stories and poetic and elegiac explanations will always have a market. I mean, he wasn't. Let's be fair. He wasn't writing, you know, for the, the red tops. He wasn't making a fortune as a very popular journalist. He wasn't everywhere. He, he was a bit of an acquired taste. And, you know, to pretend that he was, everybody knew about him and thought Robert Fisk was marvellous is, is, is not true. He, he was in a niche. And I think it would be very much the same now. Whilst we're talking about the top drawer of journalism, Boyd, uh, let's venture a few drawers down as well uh, and discuss what happened this week when an unverified Twitter account suggested Woolsworth's would be returning to the high street. I think what this story, yes, yeah, so a, a kind of a fake account opened on Twitter to to claim that Woolworths was on its way back, and everyone got very excited without really noticing that it was obviously wasn't true and it was a, was a fake situation, spelt Woolworths wrong and all of that. And I think more than anything, it just shows you uh, this in a very specific case how people love the idea of Woolworths, basically, and that you know, really, it was a very well chosen iconic retail um, name. The serious point, Liz, behind this is that, so journalists wrote this story up, like journalists in inverted commas, really, journalists wrote this up for metro.co.uk. They wrote it up for, I think, the Mail Online, and there was another site as well. Therefore, do you, where do you file this story? Is it a cock-up? Or does it underline a really serious problem, which is that isn't journalism, is it? To see that someone's written something on Twitter, do no checking at all and just say, well, Woolworths is coming back I, and publish I can, an article. I can tell you for a fact there's always been bad journalism. There's always been weak journalism. There's always been things that have been put out there, particularly um, perhaps not in the national arena, but in local. I'm not saying local journalism is any worse. Of course, I wouldn't say that because I, I was a local journalist. But, but, but this isn't tempting. even parroting a press release without query. This is parroting a Twitter account that someone's just anonymously and badly set up. But I don't think that you can say that it's necessarily worse or that journalism's worse now. There has always been that danger. There's always been that danger. Way back in the 1970s, there was the danger of somebody ringing you up in your local newsroom and telling you something and you believing it and perhaps not doing the full checks. That has actually happened to me. So I don't think that it's it's the sign of some dreadful crisis in journalism or weakness or whatever. There's always been that danger. And it was pulled pretty quickly. What I want to know is who put put it on Twitter in the first place and why did they do it what what was that for was it a prank or did they somehow get links that that they could use what why would they do it the people that put it on Twitter I mean that is an interesting question but I do think it's a more interesting question to ask why is it that we have people sitting working for major news organizations whose job it is to turn around as many stories as possible and just saw the keywords here nostalgia you know, Woolworths, even though it was spelt incorrectly, we'll get some clicks here. 
But that isn't news, is it? No, of I mean, course that really it's not is... news, but there's an awful lot in journalism that isn't news. There's always been pressure to, to fill bulletins, to keep stories going. So is it right to publish and then amend the story later if it turns out to be completely untrue, rather than check your facts first? It is wrong to publish anything which is inaccurate. Inaccuracy is absolutely your byword. You've got to be accurate as a journalist. That's very, very important. Occasionally, you will make a mistake. People will make a mistake and you must immediately apologise as soon as that happens and pull the story. And in a sense, that's what happened here. And I think you're probably, if you don't mind me saying, making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill. It was a stupid mistake, but you can see why people fell for it because it is evocative. It is interesting. They shouldn't have done it, but don't, don't let's build it up into some absolute nightmare about modern journalism because journalism has always been under that sort of pressure. In fact, in, in the past, it was really hard sometimes to, to fill the time that you, you had to, to fill. And the idea that there was this golden age when everybody had hours to check the facts, it wasn't like that. But one call to very.co.uk, who owned the Woolworths brand. Well, yeah, that's, what, yeah, that's eventually what happened, I suppose. Or Yeah, but they, everybody gets excited about something. They see it and they think, oh, yeah. But of course, the big problem is taking stuff off Twitter. I, I, I can't say that, you know, it's fair to do that. It was the wrong thing to do. But beating these people up endlessly isn't going to get us anywhere anyway, because that is one of the problems of journalism. You see a good story and your nature as a journalist is to want to tell somebody else. The whole point of journalism is this terrible excitement of, of you can know, go in the pub and say, hey, look, woo, what's happening? That's how journalists behave. Boyd, do you think there is a responsibility of the publishers to tell these mostly young journalists who have to turn out loads of these articles that it is more important to check their facts and that that is important? I think it will be better if the um, bosses of these companies that demand their journalists for whatever age and whatever salary they're on churn out 20 stories an hour, I'm exaggerating slightly, um, didn't do that and didn't bully them, frankly, into coming up with this with just monitoring Twitter and coming up with so many stories. And that's the problem. The problem is the system of, you know, of, of, the, of, of, the, of these organisations, these, in quotes, news organisations, demanding a certain number of clickbait stories from their poor journalists. It's not the journalist's problem. It's the problem of, and, and of course, you know, it, it's, it's probably the owners when it comes down to it. I blame the owners, I'm sorry. I don't blame some poor 24-year-old on a not particularly decent salary having to do 10 stories of a morning. It's, it's, it's a nightmare situation. I really feel sorry for those people because they have a dream of going into journalism. I don't think that's the dream they, they, they had in mind. To answer your earlier question, Liz, uh, about who uh, posted the fake Woolworths things on Twitter, a friend of the show, Jim Watterson at The Guardian, did some old-fashioned journalism on this. Uh, and uh, apparently the person who uh, was responsible was a 17-year-old sixth form student from York, uh, who told The Guardian they'd been practising skills learned whilst taking a course in digital marketing as part of their business A-level. <laughs> you got to laugh, come on. Uh, on to the broadcasters now, and um, much confusion after the BBC shared some new social media guidelines with staff, Boyd. Yeah, this is a classic BBC story, isn't it? <laughs> to the extent it's got it, all the it's hallmarks. got everything, all the hallmarks, <laughs> and it reminded me of the um, other classic BBC story of the year, which was the proms, you know, Royal Britannia bullshit mm. story. If I can use that word, um, you can do. If there's any show where you can call a story a bullshit story, it's right here on the Media Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and what they've got in common, what they've got in common is there's a kernel of truth. There's a kernel of truth there if you dig deep. And I remember um, uh, with the prom story, people saying, oh, the BBC was never, ever going to stop, you know, Royal Britannia or whatever it was, um, Land of Hope and Glory being 
sung at the proms. It was nonsense, you know, exploited by right-wing journalists. But there was some point, some discussion somewhere at the BBC, and this was not denied, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, people correct me if I'm wrong, that it was discussed as to what to do with those songs in the light of Black Lives Matter, etc., etc. It was discussed. And then there was this whole storm and people, you know, poor BBC press office had to deny this and the other. This time, again, there was some discussion in the BBC of whether or not it should allow its journalists to go to gay pride events. That, that did actually happen. And so the, I think it was a, a, a pink news journalist who first reported it, and it was then picked up by a lot of other journalists. They weren't making it up. You know, those discussions were had. And for the, again, the poor BBC press office, and I do feel sorry for them, but often their initial, like, as it, they act, the BBC press office acts, acts like a private company's press office. Uh, and you can't blame them for that. But I do feel in the end they're, they're, they're kind of, so the issue, they're denying it. I saw another BBC journalist on Twitter going, there's no truth to this whatsoever. It's absolute nonsense. Well, there was some truth at some point to it. That, and I think the, the, the point was also that in the bigger picture of the whole, this whole idea of the new um, social media guidelines and impartiality guidelines, and you're supposed to not say anything at all controversial on your social media, you're not supposed to attend any, in quotes, controversial event. Someone somewhere the BBC thought its news journalists shouldn't associate themselves with gay pride because of the trans issues. And that alone is absolute nonsense. What a ludicrous thing to even think of saying and doing to tell your staff they can't attend a gay pride rally for whatever reason. That was ridiculous. And at some point, that was discussed. So I think the BBC has to take its share of blame in this story, for sure. What about the rest of the rules, though, Liz? Uh, I mean, Boyd's right to to talk about the controversy there around pride marches, but there's a lot, actually, that was announced. I mean, as he summarised there, you basically can't express a view on anything political if you work in news or factual. Gary Lineker's a bit of a grey area because he works in sport but he's got a very high profile when i started in um in news it was in itv news in the well, first of all it was bbc radio in 1972 to 76 then i went into itv and it was generally understood that you did not express a political view at any point uh, and nor many of us did not belong to political parties because we felt that was not our job or it could prejudice our job in some way i absolutely believe that you have to try as hard as possible to be impartial, impartial politically, and impartial when it comes to your particular bandwagon or, or your views. I think that people who are paid by the BBC, which is a state broadcaster, they're funded by the state, people get the BBC because of a universality of provision. That's terribly important, that the concept that everybody in this country is entitled to media, universality of provision of media in the same way gas and water and electricity and so on. Then in that case, because everybody's entitled to it, the journalists must not use that platform to promote their own views. I, I, I don't have any problem at all with that. Where it does get silly is when they start talking about things that are celebratory or lifestyle or whatever, not necessarily political, and, and bring that into it. And I slightly disagree with Paul, not to any great extent, but I think it's probably inevitable in a great big organisation at the BBC that at some committee, somewhere on something, somebody would raise these issues, even in the sense of just being, I don't know, devil's advocate or clever ass or something. It's, oh, well, what about, you know, gay pride or whatever? And that can then be re-broadcast as, oh, they, they've talked about keeping you out of your gay pride marches. But that that's, I'm sure, just irrelevant to, to the main core of this, which is that the journalists at the BBC should 
be impartial. I guess the problem is that if things aren't clearly delineated, Boyd, then people will say, oh, well, I thought I wasn't allowed to support a charity anymore, and that's problematic. Or, you know, what does this mean when they're telling me to wear a poppy or to support children in need? So they sort of have to spell it out, but then by spelling it out, it becomes more complicated because people can think of counterexamples. Whereas really, it's common sense, isn't it? You work for the BBC, they're an impartial broadcaster, so don't say anything that's going to upset people. Yes, but I think they've got themselves in... I think they have made it worse. I think they've made the situation worse because they've now got... They've now got you know, the poppies is the classic example because you've now got people quite fairly saying, well... Wearing a poppy is, to some extent, it's, an, it's, it's a legitimate point of view to say that wearing poppies is virtual signalling. If you're going to suddenly decide that virtual signalling, whatever the F that means, and it's one person's virtual signalling, virtual signalling is another person's, you know, campaigning for something that's absolutely 100% right, right? It just depends which side you're on. And, you know, I, I think to, some people don't wear poppies because they're pacifists. So it is, it's more complicated. And if, so that virtual signalling element of this new, these new rules, I find absolutely ridiculous. To even use the phrase in this context is absolutely preposterous and totally laying you open to, to, to interpretation. And by the way, I don't think it was a problem. I just, just you know, it's, who's, who's complaining about Gary Lineker talking about refugees on his Twitter account? Well, right-wing people, right-wing newspapers, ideological people who have an issue with the BBC particularly. And this is another example for me of the BBC kind of worrying, overthinking, over-worrying about what its right-wing competitors who want to destroy it have to say about them. Because, you know, at the end, I trust the BBC. I don't think Gary has to be impartial because he presents match of the day. I don't think anyone gives a shit apart from, you know, in a pretend way, um, some, a, a columnist on the sun or whatever. So I think I, I find these, these rules completely ridiculous. I no, I think there was a drift towards presenters and news presenters and so on becoming more opinionated. And I think probably by and large, Jim Davies is right to say that's not what we do. Uh, but I do agree with Ollie. It's a common sense interpretation. Interestingly, with poppies, my father, who had an absolutely horrible war and, and had to do horrible things and go to awful places, would never wear a poppy. He always said, yeah. we did it so you don't have to remember. Yeah, a lot of people So don't. it, it yeah. is interesting. Can I, one, one more thing. Can I just say, like, Piers Morgan, what's the difference between Piers Morgan, a news presenter on ITV, who relentlessly, day in, day out, berates the government on his Twitter feed? You know, why, does he, why is he allowed to get away with it? ITV is under the same Ofcom rules as the BBC. Well, absolutely. And yet- yeah, and when I worked for ITV, there was an understanding that you didn't do that sort of thing. But again, it's almost like the Johnny Depp syndrome, isn't it? Piers Morgan is a big name and he feels he can do as he does. And what, how would you train students for this scenario, Liz? Because on the one hand, what you're saying to people learning this stuff now is the most important thing is to go out there and podcast and blog and build your personal brand. <laughs> and then at the same time, you're saying, oh, yeah, but if you want a job with the biggest broadcaster in the country, don't. Yeah, that's right, because that's that's the the compromise that you have to make. If you want to be very individualist and go out and, you know, and bang on on your, your podcast or whatever about things, that's up to you. If you But if you're going to work for the BBC, you've got to accept impartiality. Impartiality and objectivity are slightly different things. As a journalist, a good journalist, you've got to be objective. I think the, the whole idea is that you provide both sides of the story in broadcasting under the Broadcasting Act. It's nothing to do with the BBC, as Boyd so rightly pointed out. It's, it's anybody who is a public service broadcaster. It is your job to provide both sides of the story. And that's one of the most difficult things when you first get journalism students, because they don't see that. They all come along thinking, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to change the world. And when you say no, 
you have to say what the other side thinks. They find that very tough. But what actually happens is they start to learn that if you let both sides of the story express themselves, then often the, the weaker side of the story or the less justified side of the story hangs itself. And that's much better than hanging them yourself. And slightly last in all of this discussion about the various controversies of what the BBC is suggesting that its uh, employees do, is their recommendation that staff no longer break stories on their personal accounts as well. And I'm curious what you make of that, given the slow speed at which the BBC as a corporate body can actually legitimately publish breaking news stories. Doesn't this just mean that commercial rivals will get ahead? You're wanting it both ways now. I mean, the, the BBC is very scrupulous about having two sources when you're going to break a story. It takes time. I tend to think if you're employed by the BBC and that's how you earn your living and you're a BBC journalist and you get the enormous benefits of being associated with the BBC and the BBC brand. If you're going to break a story, you do it through the BBC and you go through these slow... What if the story is rumours? What if you can openly say on Twitter, which people do, you know, big editors in the BBC will put on Twitter, I'm hearing rumours that so-and-so is considering resigning. That doesn't mean that you've had two sources. It's, you're not saying it's a breaking news story. I'm hearing rumours that Woolworths is coming back. You know, <laughs> you've got to be very careful. You know, people who work at the BBC have the enormous benefit of working for the BBC. And there are duties and responsibilities that go with that. And I think, tough, you've got to suck it up. But the, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we are in this weird situation where the political correspondents, like Laura Koonsberg and Robert Peston, are regularly um, doing tweets which are, um, you know, anonymously sourced, basically, you know, Dominic Cummings, telling them what to say <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> And they both do it all the time, as if it's like some kind of new valued, new, valued new breaking news. And it's not, and often, I mean, the, the really outrageous one recently was when they slagged off um, the leader of the Labour Party for daring to say there should be a circuit break, a two-three circuit break. And they, and they both quoted, obviously, Dominic Cummings, but, but, you know, slagging him off as if that was news. That's not news. If you have the privilege of knowing what they think inside number 10, you sort of have a responsibility to broadcast that yeah. too, don't you? Absolutely. You have that duty. And there is this hierarchical thing in the BBC that if you've got the title editor, um, then you are expected to give your opinions and you're being paid for your opinions. If you're a run-of-the-mill journalist, you're not being paid for your opinions. It's very different. It's like I don't, think, I don't think being the mouthpiece of Dominic Cummings is news. I'm sorry. In every way whatsoever, I just don't see that. And if, if that, for me, they have to refuse to be that mouthpiece and quote him directly. That's news. That is news. That's an interesting challenge, Boyd. Let's hope well, they take that up. Yeah, I think they take it on. <laughs> Talking of interesting challenges, the time has come. Oh, no. For the media podcast. Oh, I hate this. Yeah, well, wait till you hit the introduction that producer Pete has written oh, up here. No. It's extraordinary. As the nights grow longer and Santa's elves punch in for another double shift at the Amazon warehouse, Adland has once again dusted us with a snow shower of cinematic consumerism, it says here. Uh, John Lewis normally dominates the headlines at this time of year, but so far it hasn't released a crumb of info about this year's Christmas ad, so that leaves us room to gorge on some otherwise overlooked trimmings from brands that have splashed the cash on Yuletide promos. <laughs> Overwritten much? Uh, buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Liz, you will say... Liz! And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. Ready? Yes. Yeah, sort fair of. Fair to say, yeah. but as they'll ever be. <laughs> Here is question number one. Which brand has pulled a maverick move with a top pun? Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Oh, Boyd. Boyd. Is it, Boyd. Is it TK Maxx? No. no. Liz, do you want to steal it? No, because I don't know what you mean. It's uh, Aldi's Peel Aldi. the Need campaign, which is a Top Gun parody 
uh, from ad agency Macan London, which puts a talking carrot in a jump jet cockpit. I hated that. I really hated that one. I thought it was horrible. That turkey, it's so mean. Yeah. It's terrible. yeah. Animated turkeys celebrating their own death always creeps me out at Christmas time. <laughs> right. So uh, neither of you got that. Here's question number two. <laughs> Boyd got the right answer for this one, Clue. <laughs> oh, which, right. <laughs> <laughs> which retailer's fashion forward goat is gently headbutting a tricky year? Boyd. Oh, that's Boyd. lovely. That's Liz, TK Maxx. <laughs> you, that is, Boyd said his name Thank first, you. so he even gets though, the point, but yeah, yes. Even though he queued you up, Liz, you still came in second on that one. <laughs> um, it was TK Maxx. Um, uh, so shit. <laughs> it is TK Maxx's ad from Agency Wyden and Kenny, uh, featuring a farmer buying designer clothes for his animals because they've had a difficult year. That was a good ad, wasn't it? Liz? It was lovely. I loved that. Surprising, I think. Yeah, it's good. Uh, okay, and uh, here is question number three. Liz, your chance to make this a draw. Uh, which retailer is hoping a book of dreams will cast a magic spell this Christmas. Oh, that's Aldi. No, it's not. Oh. Buzzing with your name when you know the oh, answer. Oh, oh, oh. Liz. Liz. Aldi. <laughs> Aldi, Liz. Oh, We've God. already oh, done God. the Aldi one. It's Argos. It's Argos. Correct. Yes. We'll, I don't like we'll call that it a draw. Um, no, I don't. Bloody awful ad. Have you seen yeah. it, boys? Yeah, the Argos ad? It was on a bit. Yeah, like. I, I imagine the edited version on TV will be more palatable than the, like the three-minute YouTube version. But <laughs> it's, it's a long yeah. version. Oh, it goes on. Yeah, it just does. go on um, a bit. Kids are cute, but... Oh. Uh, yes, Agency was uh, the AND partnership. Uh, two young girls uh, aspiring to be magicians after seeing a magic set in uh, the store's paper catalogue, which it no longer prints, by the way. I know, yeah. Although they oh. are doing a special Christmas edition of the Argos catalogue. Oh, good. That's but anyway, good. weird. Good to know. The winner is neither of you. It's a draw. Yay! And happy Christmas, everyone. Uh, that is it for today. Uh, thanks to my guests, Professor Liz Howell and Boyd Hilton. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then do visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. If you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode dedicated to you. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.